Welcome to the Choose Life Radio Network. Your host is Jill Taylor. Every week we bring you a candid conversation with someone who's making a difference for the cause of life. And now here's Jill to introduce today's guest on Choose Life Radio. I'm grateful you're here with me today because you and I have something in common with our guest. We're all sinners and we're all saved by grace. Welcome to Choose Life Radio. Our guest today is Marshall Brandon. Marshall, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Jill. It's my privilege. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, it's our joy. You've served God in so many ways. What I'd love to do is have you share with us what God has called you to do at this point in your life. What's God asking you to do right now? Well, God is asking me, I think, to do two things, uh, which I've continue to learn, and that is to love God with all my heart. It's the great commandment. It's to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love others as myself. As a result of that love, I believe, is making disciples. So loving God, loving people, that's all I want to do this season of my life. And uh, with this help, hopefully I'll be able to do that, Jill. You're serving as a pastor? Yes, I'm not attached. I like to call myself a pastor at large now. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not attached to a local congregation. That's what I do. I feel uh, pulpits, I disciple of Bible study, um, premarital counseling, postmarital counseling. So I do everything I was doing when I was connected to a, to a local church, but uh, without that connection. Marshall, would you begin from your youth and talk to me about the formation of your life in your home and where it all went in the beginning? I have a very difficult, I just start very difficult. Uh, it's always hard for me to go back and, and relive it. But my father, let me start here. My father is the youngest of 18 children. My grandfather was actually born into slavery. Joe Brandon was born in uh, 1859. My grandfather, by those 18, he had two different wives. So uh, first set of children, he had nine. And then my dad was part of the second set of children. He was the youngest of that nine. Born in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, raised in the South. My dad was sharecropper, uneducated. My dad uh, was um, enticed to come from the South to the North, which probably would consider the migration and part of the Great Migration. So my dad came North like many blacks and uh, got a job in the steel mill. I don't know what happened to my dad, uh, but my dad became an alcoholic. So we had a lot of things going on as a result of that. As being an adult child of alcoholic, I understand somewhat better now. But uh, uh, my mom responded to that in her own way and was in relationships that she should not have been in. Uh, and I remember calling, I was just was five, I remember starting kindergarten, and I remember coming home and seeing my mom kissing a man. And I didn't understand all that, but I knew enough that it was my dad. And I recall my dad coming home, and I told my dad. Well, argument ensued. My dad stormed out the house, and my mother uh, was a rageaholic. And so I was beaten, if you will. And uh, we used to get these beatings with uh, with extension cords. It was, a, it was stre- extremely abusive. I'll never forget it. A beaten and thrown into a closet. And I remember my mother saying to me, you better never tell on me again. As a part of that, I think it hugely influenced me, and I became very much angry and bitter and um, very much an introvert. So with all those dynamics going on in the household with four older siblings who very much dysfunctional, 
my brothers were bullies. Uh, I had my sister was a saving grace. She's much like my mom and still is today. She she's ten years older than me, but she's one of my pleasant experiences. Her taking care of me as much as she could, providing nurture. Now, the thing about abuse is interesting to me. Is as much as I tell you about my mom and so on bad, she was a loving woman. She had a side of her that was nurturing and. There was nothing she wouldn't do for you. But she had this other side that was very much abusive, very angry. Now, as an adult, I looked back and would wonder, I wonder what happened to my mom. I wonder what she went through. I wonder what made her the person that she became. Because obviously some things happened. I never had a chance to ask her that. But let's fast forward. But anyhow, so we're walking through this life and I'm very much uncomfortable at home. I don't like the environment. I have no direction. My dad went to the sixth grade, I think. My mom went to the eighth grade. Intelligent people, but not educated, if I can say that. Because my mom managed the house and made sure bills were paid and was able to read and do those kind of things, but very much uh, limited because of her lack of education. So by the time I was probably third grade, I could read better than most people in my house. Everybody, all my brothers, except for my sister. My brothers dropped out of school early. So as a young man, just let me, I I was in the streets a lot because home was not a safe place. So anytime I could get out the house, I got out the house. That's a very interesting statement you just made. I I just want to have our listener be sure they understand that the house was not a safe place. It was not a safe place. It was not a safe place. You were going to butt heads. You were going to get in trouble. You were going to get smacked around. Get smacked around. Yeah. Yeah, with... You never knew where mom might be. And because some of mom's shenanigans, you know, I was given freedom to go, go out and play, you know, because of her interaction with what she was doing. So I travel. I was all over the place, out in the streets. And the streets have not necessarily good things to offer. So I began to learn. One of the things I learned to do was because of that anger in my situation, I learned how to take care of myself. So I became pretty good at fighting. I had an inner rage and so I could fight because I only had to fight in the streets, but I had to fight off my older brothers and that kind of thing. So in Youngstown, it's, it's a very blue-collar town in many ways because of the steel mills back in those days. Mm-hmm. It, but very blue-collar, tough town. I mean, tough for the working-class people. So getting a reputation as a good fighter gave me just that, a rep. And attracted by gangs. I formed a gang. My older brothers were in a gang, so we had a junior gang, we called it. So mm-hmm. we were uh, the new breed juniors, and so we had a gang. And I was uh, had leadership abilities, but didn't know that at the time. But I, I was leading in the wrong kind of way, so I was the leader of a gang. And there was a part of me, Jill, that wanted out of that. I didn't know how to get out. How do I get out of this? I need to get out of this situation. And I used to dream. I used to dream a lot. I, I would read anything. I was God blessed me to be able to read and learn, and and so I'd read anything I could read. It wasn't a lot of books in the house. There weren't a lot because mm-hmm. there weren't puzzles. There weren't those kind of things. Yeah. But I'd read anything I get my hands on comic books. And one of the, one of the things I used to read was Little Orphan Annie. I was drawn to that because I always dreamed that Big Daddy Warbucks would drive up to my house one day, <laughs> open the limousine and say, come on in, Marshall, I'm going to take you out of this. Fast forward, I didn't know that that one day would be Jesus Christ who would come and rescue me and pull me out of my sin and shame. So back to that, I would dream, so how do I get out of this? How do I get out? Where do I go? 
do I finish school? Do I go to college? I had none of those aspirations. It was just at that time, just get through high school if you could do that. So I got to uh, the 11th grade and frustrated, ran to some guys on the street who said, hey, man, we're getting ready to go into the service. Why don't you go with us? At the same time, because I was fighting, the police were threatening me. We're going to send you away. One more incident, Marshall, because I was getting in trouble and fighting mm-hmm, in school. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my friends in the gang actually got sent away. Mm-hmm. I was trying to avoid that. I said, I don't, you know, that's not something I want. So they, this opportunity to go into the service was... Um, my chance. And mm-hmm. so they said, well, you're, you're only 17. You need to get your parents' permission. And so I went home with the paperwork and said, Mom and Dad, I want to go into service. Would you be willing to sign? And they said, yeah, we will. Now, I grew up in my era. It was Cowboys and Indians, and we played war. Audie Murphy and those kind of things. Those were our heroes. So war was something I kind of glamorized. It was fighting. I could be a soldier. So I was looking forward to that, and they gave us a buddy plan. You'll be with your buddy. At least that's what they said. They didn't put it in writing. So (laughs) that ended up not that way. We joined the service and went to uh, basic training, and then I went to advanced training in chemical and biological warfare. I, again, tested high, so uh, we had top-secret clearance and those kind of things. So That's really incredible, and that's a gift. They discovered the things that you were really good at and gave you an opportunity. Gave me an opportunity, right, to do that. So I got stationed at Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland, which is a post where lots of secretive things take place. Uh, again, it's chemical and biological warfare and veterans, and there's a lot of testing and all those kind of things that they do. So I was there and got assigned to post commander, was his driver, had a good job. They came uh, probably about six months after that and said, hey, you, we're going to ship you guys out to Vietnam. There's a, and I, I was politically naive and of, unaware of this little conflict they were calling Vietnam. And so we're going to, your unit, we're going to ship you guys to Vietnam. And so they, what they call cut orders, they made orders so that we could go. But they said, you're 17, you have to be 18 to go. You can't go now. So they shipped my unit out. I stayed back on the post until I turned 18. That was about six months. And as soon as I turned 18, they cut orders for me to go to Vietnam. And uh, again, I got 30 leave, went home, told my mom, I'm headed over. Not knowing if I'd ever return, tears shed, et cetera. Leaving, going 13,000 miles away right. from home at 18. And as naive as much as I thought I knew about the street, I'm a kid. I'm emotionally, I'm a kid. And they send me to this jungle, in the middle of the jungle. Wow. We're going to take a quick break. This is uh, a very complex story, and I can't wait to get back to it. And I know our listeners thinking the same thing. We will be right back with you in a moment at Choose Life Radio. Choose Life Radio believes that life is a sacred gift from God and should be treated as such, from conception to natural death. Our purpose is to share in-depth conversations with persons who have a direct connection to the life issue. These conversations encourage, inspire, and shine the light of God's amazing grace on a lost and hurting world. Your gift today, whatever the size, will help us continue to expand the reach of these life-affirming conversations. You can give generously online by visiting chooseliferadio.com. Just click the donate button at the top of the page Or you can mail your gift to Choose Life Radio, Post Office Box 36622, Canton, Ohio 44735. 
That's Choose Life Radio, Post Office Box 36622, Canton, Ohio 44735. That address is also posted at ChooseLifeRadio.com. Your gift helps keep this life-affirming message on the radio. Now let's get back to the conversation. Welcome back to Choose Life Radio. I'm Jill Taylor, your host, and so glad that you're with us. Uh, We have heard a very tumultuous story up to this point with a great man, with Marshall Brandon. And we're going to wrap a little of that story up because I want you to hear some of the other great things he has to say. So, Marshall, would you finish up on what took place for you during that war? Can you kind of give us a feeling for, I know it was terrible to it be. It was terrible. Yeah. And, and so much of it I just have been released from uh, emotionally and just diagnosed with PTSD last year, actually. Obviously, was experiencing it and was unaware that I had it. Just stuffed things when I came back uh, for 50 years almost. This is the 60s, 1966. Our country's uh, in turmoil for many different reasons, not only the war, but uh, in terms of black and white and and, uh, the civil rights movement and all of that's changing. And so for me, politically, becoming politically aware uh, in Vietnam is when my eyes begin. I'm growing up where the war has a way of making you mature, you know, and you're seeing survival and you're seeing a lot of things that are just horrific. So when they're wondering if you're going to survive, will I make it back home? Will I make it? Uh, one of the things that stood out, and so many things that happened, but certainly at this point we don't have time to discuss all that, but one of the things they had was a propagandist. Her name was Anoy Hannah. Anoy Hannah would drop leaflets, and it would say, go home, black man. Your war is at home. Your war is not here. And my eyes began to open politically to the, the struggles that we have here in America that still exist to this day. But I began to think about, here I am fighting a war to free people 13,000 miles away from home, and then I can't go home, and there are places I can't go in America myself. And that made me very angry, and I became very militant as a result of that. Fast forward, dealing with all of that, God obviously blessed me, uh, allowed me to come back to America in 1967, and begin the transition of getting out of the service and trying to figure out what I was going to do in life, post-service. They didn't want me to stay, and I didn't want to stay. I wanted out. I wanted to fight. I wanted to hurt people. Uh, I was very, even more angry. I was already an angry man. Now I'm bitter, and I wanted to hurt people. And I think even coming back into the States for that war in particular, I have good friends who also served in that war. We're about the same age, and I remember the hurtful words, the lack of care that people had for the people coming back from Vietnam, as if they had done something wrong. They did what our country told them to do. And yet, there was not a a reception for you. It was not. I love my country. I love it today. I was not drafted. So I wanted to fight for America, and that was what I thought I was doing. But yeah, to come back and hear uh, not be very welcome was very difficult and painful. Well, what happened in your life then, from then on? I came back uh, angry, bitter, wanting to do some things. And while it was very negative, something good has kept me from doing something that would hurt a lot of people and perhaps hurt myself. I got an addiction. I started to smoke marijuana when I was there. I came back. I got involved with something heavier, more addictive, and that was opiates. I got involved with heroin. 
And as a result of heroin, I started to commit crimes to support the habit. I got convicted of of a crime and sent to Mansfield Reformatory. I'm freshly home from the service, and I'm asking the judge, will you give me a break? I just got back. They weren't even calling it PTSD, but I knew I had issues. And he said, I'm going to give you a break, all right? (laughs) So he sent me to Mansfield Reformatory for 10 to 25 years. And I'm like, how am I going to navigate this? Very difficult. That's a whole other story. But anyhow, getting in there, surviving that, getting a trade, going back to school, finishing high school. I was able to do those kind of things and start college. And so starting college gave me an opportunity in 1973, the state of Ohio started a program called the furlough program, which allowed inmates to come out and work or go to school prior to their actual release date. So you came to a community place and it was a good program. So anyhow, I started going to Ashton College. They actually came into the institution to teach classes. And, and so you I were an a, achiever ed- a, educationally. <laughs> right. And leading in there, too. In, in another way, again, that's another. God's, you know, exposing my leadership skills. And so I get to come out early to Akron, Ohio, on this furlough program to start college. And it's a place called Denton House. Uh, Bill Denton is was uh, founded this house for inmates coming out of prison. There was a Christian place. I wasn't uh-huh. a Christian. Wasn't thinking about Christian. Wasn't thinking about becoming a Christian. But these were Christians who had this place. And I remember seeing something different in them. It stuck out to me by the way they were living their life and the way they would witness to me, the way they loved on me. And I remember, in particular, God planting a seed with a man named Dave Fair. Dave Fair, point blank, asked me, did I have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And I said, no, Dave. I just want to encourage your listeners. The day you plant the seed is not the same day you eat the fruit. God used Dave to plant the seed in my life. I went through a lot after that. With I met my wife on campus. We got married. I was able to fool her long enough to, she said yes, and ask her enough times till she said yes. And we got married. So in 1974. Uh, she said yes to me, uh, no secrets. You know, I was like coming out of the penitentiary and trying to start a new life and trying to do the right things. And, but I didn't have the power to do it. You know, I thought I was smart enough, strong enough to do it on my own and find myself in addiction again. We got married. Within two years, we were separated. My addiction had started to take control of our house. And and one of the best things she ever did was, was uh, to leave me. That's not good to hear, is it? No, she said, I, I love you. I love you too much to watch you destroy yourself. While it was painful to me, I looked back on it. And, and had she not done that, it would not have put us in a position that it did to ultimately receive Christ. So she left me. I was doing everything I was big enough and bad enough to do, trying to fulfill this empty hole in my life, trying to find the peace now I know that only God could give, and I thought I could find it in other things. So in 1977, I went by to visit my, my wife, who I was separated from. When I went to visit her this time, she looked different. And she said, uh, have a seat. I, she said, how are you doing? I said, oh, I'm, I'm doing okay. She said, okay, I was lying. She said, let me tell you something. Uh, our life is going to be different than it, it ever was. And I went, what do you mean? She said, I got saved. Now, if you're unsaved, you don't know what saved means. But I went good. <laughs> it's an opportunity because I'm trying to get back with this woman. That's what was important to me. That's what was on my mind. Hey, can you give me another chance? She's going to know we're done. We're headed to divorce court. But uh, let me invite you out to church. 
I'm saying, baby, you say jump. How high you want me to jump? All I'm trying to do is win this woman's heart back. So I started going to church, and uh, I like to say the first time I went down the aisle, but I didn't. But it was a little storefront church, and uh, this young man was preaching the Word of God. And the more every time I went, I heard God's Word, and it began to impact me and convict my heart, and the Holy Spirit was drawing me. One of the elders asked her, what, what do you want? you want this man back? Well, he wants to pray. She said, I can have him back. I want him to get saved. He said, okay, we'll pray for him to get saved. So through this process of going, God convicted my heart. I said yes to Jesus Christ in June of 1977. And God changed my life, took my addiction away on the spot, changed my heart. I was Now, I know I'm in process. I still am. But for that part of me, I was delivered. So I asked my wife, could I come back home I, just till I can get on my feet? I was basically homeless, didn't have a job. The elder came up and said, you know, what do you want to pray? I said, I need a job. Will you pray? He said, yeah, we'll pray. Two weeks I had a job, got a job. I started telling my wife, listen, just till I can get, find a place, will you let me stay with you? And she said, well, yeah, you can come stay until you find a place. Well, that was 50 years ago. I haven't left yet. I want you to know I'm still there. So <laughs> she's still putting up with me. But that began the process in our life of change and transformation and God beginning to work in my life and all this provision, a job, and then family coming along, which you you know our son, Kali. But Kali was born in 1980, and I didn't know how to be a dad. I didn't have that kind of, I'm saying, God, how do I be a dad? How do I be a godly man? I want to know how to do this in a godly way. So will you teach me? And God began to teach me. And one of the things I want to share this is I saw dads kissing their sons. I want to be able to kiss my son. And I told my wife, I want to be able to kiss him when we're grown men. And she said, well, start doing it now. So when he was born, I got him first. I'm like, let me have him. And I (laughs) kissed him. And he's 40-something now, and we kiss every time. God bless that. So even through those teenage years that are awkward for boys, you know, you have that. But we kissed all, all along and still today. I'm so grateful for your story. It is a powerful story. The power of what God can do if we will allow him into even our weakness, even our times of feeling like this is the only path for me. Interesting thing about this story is God continues to write it. And I always like to say it's his story in in my life. It's not my story. So this is all about God's glory and what a great God we serve and that there's nothing too hard for him. So while I was in my addiction, in 1970, before I went to prison, I had a relationship with a woman. I recall her getting pregnant. My counsel to her was, let's abort the baby. She said, no, I'm going to have the baby, and I'm going to give it up for adoption. So right before I went to prison, all this is God's providence. I happened to be at my mother's house. And the phone, she says, it's a phone call for you. And I said, oh, who is it? She said, it's Lynn. So Lynn, I picked up. I hadn't talked with Lynn. She said, just as sweet as she could be. Hi, this is Lynn. I said, hi, Lynn. How you doing? She said, well, I'm doing good. She said, uh, I said, where are you? She said, I'm in the hospital. I just had the baby. I went, oh. I said, what is it? She said, it's a little girl. I went, oh. I said, who she look like? She said, she looks like you. I said, oh, well, I'll be over to see her. Best laid plans. None of that happened. I went to prison. Never saw her, but she was there because of that call. I knew she was in my heart. I wonder what happened to her. So for 50 years, 
I didn't know. I looked on Facebook just trying to find her mom's name or something. And I didn't know if she was dead or alive. So fast forward. I get a friend request from a young lady named Kelly. And I go to her page to see who's friend requesting me. And I looked on her post and I saw her mother's name talking about how her daughter had found her and how she was now helping other adoptees find their parents. And I said, that's my daughter. And joy inside of me just left. I imagine, I like to say it's like Elizabeth when Mary came to visit her and they said, the baby inside John the Baptist just jumped in her womb and the Spirit of God jumped inside of me and said, oh my God, that's my daughter. It's too much to explain how God did this. She said, I've always wanted you. My, I wanted to find my daddy. And her mother, because of our situation, wouldn't tell her. She found her mom two years ago. She said, who's my dad? I want to know who my daddy is. She said, I don't know who he is and the story. And so that's a whole other oh, part of the goodness. drama we're still yeah. dealing with. <laughs> but she didn't give up. And I told her the story. You know, my desire, don't hold that against your mom. My desire, I was irresponsible. That's where I was. I wanted to abort you. But the beauty of this, of not aborting, she has five grandchildren, which gives me five great-grandchildren. It's a complicated story, but only God can do it. It's and a miracle. Right. Only God. I said, we are living in the midst of a miracle, <laughs> yeah. you know. And, yeah. so, and it brings you such joy. It's fun to watch your face as you talk about her. I think, again, it's a reminder when people think of the easy answer is abortion. They don't understand the gift that God gave you. It's a gift that he wants you to understand and wants you to know how precious that little life is. I'm Jill Taylor, and we'll have another opportunity to get together with you next week on Choose Life Radio. The preceding program was sponsored by the Choose Life Radio Network of Canton, Ohio.